Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gellif. Julia, I wonder what we got to talk about today. Well, Massimo, we are here again live at the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. Give everyone a home round of applause. Yeah. See what you're missing? And I'm very excited to welcome our special guest today, Jim Holt is a science writer and author. He's published several books, including A History of Jokes, um, and in 2012, a book called Why Does the World Exist? An Existential Detective Story, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, Jim has also published many articles for publications like The New Yorker, New York Times, Harper's, New York Review of Books, and so on and so forth. Jim, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So uh, I, I really enjoyed your book, uh, as I, I mentioned. It's a, essentially a, an investigation of why anything exists at all. Um, I also really liked your title, although I kind of wished you had titled it just, Why Is? It was a nice, concise, because that's really the question. It's not, it's not so much about why is the universe the way that it is, um, well, it's partly about that, it's not about how did the universe come into being, but really, why is there a universe at all? Yeah, it was sort of motivated by uh, Wittgenstein, who was, the, you know, I think, the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. And uh, Wittgenstein had a very strong um, sort of, uh, mystical and religious uh, impulse, although he was not, uh, probably not a believer. And Wittgenstein uh, you know, once said in a lecture, um, the, the, yes. it is not how the world is that is the mystical, not how things are in the world that is oh, the mystical, thanks, thanks. but that there's a world at all. And so he was always astonished uh, at, at, oh, yeah? the, at the miracle of existence, that there should be a world rather than nothing at all. And this is something that you know, has uh, astonished and perplexed uh, other philosophers, uh, Heidegger, uh, arguably the greatest uh, continental philosopher of the, of the 20th century. Wait, greatest continental? Oh, sorry. Uh, well, the greatest yeah. Nazi continental philosopher, maybe. Uh, sure. Uh, um, Massimo was objecting to the continental yeah. part. Yeah, the oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, is that, is go that ahead. Oxymoron? No, yeah, go sorry. ahead. These, these analytical Philistines here. Um, yes. But and then for other people, the question, why is there a world rather than nothing at all, is, you know, it's just silly. It's, it's a, a child's naive question. Um, I, uh, one of the first uh, great thinkers I spoke to in my quest to get a handle on this question was uh, a very great philosopher uh, of science and a very, very militant, perhaps the most militant atheist I've ever encountered, whose name is Adolf Grunbaum. He's at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's just turning 90 years old. And he claimed that anybody who was obsessed with the question of existence, with the question, why is there something rather than nothing, was, uh, was really enthralled to, a, uh, to uh, Christian metaphysics. The, the idea, Even as an atheist, right? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was only, uh, you know, the, the, the question, why is there a world rather than nothing at all, is, is a modern question. It wasn't really uh, framed in that form until the, uh, the, se- the 17th century, when uh, uh, Leibniz, the uh, German philosopher who wrote in French uh, and Latin, uh, posed it. And uh, why is there something rather than nothing? And if, if you look at the ancient Greeks, for example, among you know, many other uh, uh, earlier civilizations, they didn't have a concept of absolute nothingness. They had a concept of sort of a pre-existing chaotic mess that was organized by demiurges or by some, by some evolutionary process, and, and which gave rise to cosmos. So it's chaos giving rise to cosmos, not a world coming out of nothingness. And so the, the idea that... Uh, that the, that the world could have come out of absolutely nothing is really a Christian idea. And in the, the early church fathers uh, believed in, in uh, uh, that the God that they envisaged was infinite in every respect, all-powerful, and he could create a world out of nothing at all. He didn't need any sort of pre-existing material. Okay, so this is the Christian, you know, the, the, the Christian metaphysical equation. God plus nothing equals the world. Okay, now, suppose you take God... They, they were not very good at math. Uh, yeah. Right. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like equations that don't actually have numbers in them. Right. So now, now suppose you, you don't go for the God hypothesis. So you don't, you're, you're an atheist. You, you, say, you would say, well, we have this equation, God plus nothing equals the world. Now we take God out of the equation, and we have blank plus nothing equals, equals the world. 
Now we've got to fill that blank with something else that could bring a world out of nothingness. And so this is what, this is what many uh, physicists have been trying to do recently, uh, notably uh, Lawrence Krauss, who is, I think, a very, a very good physicist, and everything he writes is worth reading. Uh, yeah, I think he's fundamentally wrong-headed. Uh, Some things more than others. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, on this particular matter. But he thinks that you can replace God with the laws of physics and, and get a perfectly satisfying equation that explains why there's a world rather than nothing at all, and does so in purely scientific terms. I've just been babbling for too long, so I'll... I'll well, let me, let me ask you one thing. So, actually, when I started reading your book um, uh, for review in the Philosopher's Magazine, the first thing that came to my mind was this quote from somebody who was neither a philosopher nor a scientist, but had a lot of interesting things to say about this kind of stuff, Douglas Adams. So he said, in the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and has been widely regarded as a bad move. <laughs> the point being that I think... Um, Adams was actually focusing on what happened after the universe, which is a problem also, of course, for Christians. I mean, this, this brings up the, the whole point of the, the whole problem of okay. evil, you know, why, why the, the universe is, in fact, the way it is. The ancient Greeks did have an answer for that. Uh, Plato's idea of the, the Murge, this, you know, sort of minor god who, who had certain things to work with, and he did his best. So the, what explained the fact that the, the world is not particularly good is just that, eh, you know, what, that's what he had to work with. So, but Adams start, started focusing basically on what happened after. Now, on the other hand, the focus on your book, of course, is, is to answer or to, to, to explore the different the range of possibilities of the, the, the assumption that is something actually was created. Now, I agree with you that uh, uh, Grunbaum's answer, uh, dismissal of the entire question, is a little too easy. When I read that chapter, I said, I just wish it were that easy to get rid of it, but, um, but I don't buy it. On the other hand, in the book, you also go um, sort of to the opposite extreme. You, you talk about to, to Richard Swinburne, uh, arguably one of the most um, well-known theologians currently active, currently arrive. And, and, Swinburne, and not, not just a theologian, by the way, but a philosopher of science. Yes. He's very well-versed. He understands general relativity theory. Right. He understands uh, Bayesian reasoning. Um, a very versatile intellectual. Right. Now, I buy Swinburne's answer just as much as I buy uh, Grunbaum's, which is none at all. But would you like to sort of summarize what Swinburne says before we actually get into a conversation about it? What, what was his take on it? Sure. <clears throat> Richard Swinburne, who I, I agree with Massimo, is, is the most interesting uh, uh, philosopher of religion um, uh, in the English-speaking world today. He's been at Oxford his entire career. And he uh, uh, has built uh, over the decades and refined a, an inductive case, an inductive scientific case for the existence of God. You know, the old-fashioned theologians would try to give you a, a deductive proof of God's existence. They would say, uh, God is defined as, the being, as a being that, uh, that exists and, and whose existence is inconceivable, therefore God must exist. That's, you know, a garbled version of the ontological proof. This is the cosmological proof that God is, is by definition, the first cause of all that exists and so forth. But Swinburne has developed a, a purely inductive uh, scientific uh, case for God, and it, it, it begins with, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, with evidence, and the evidence that there is a world, rather than nothing at all, that the world is... Uh, is orderly. It obeys causal laws. Uh, it's it's much more likely a priori that the world should be a mess, but this world is is, is uh, does obey causal laws. It seems to be fine-tuned for the existence of creatures like us. If you look at all of the the so-called cosmological the, the so-called constants in the uh, in the uh, standard model of physics, if you vary any of them, I, I'm sure everyone's heard this argument. If you vary any of them by the slightest bit, the universe would be completely inhospitable to life let alone uh, conscious, uh, intelligent observers like ourselves. So if you, if you, to explain all of this, Swinburne argues, the simplest hypothesis is God. And you know, uh, the idea that, that God, you know, I find, I, I, he puts this case with you know, great nuance and great intelligence. The sticking point for me is his claim that the God hypothesis is a simple one. And it's based on the idea that, how do you define God? Well, God is infinite in every respect, infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable, eternal, and so forth. And so it's the simplest thing other than zero, right? Zero is, is the simplest thing because it's, it's, it's you know, it's nothing. It's the, it's the, it's the only non-arbitrary number. The number 17, by contrast, is very arbitrary. But infinity is like zero. It's not arbitrary. And if you define a being as being infinite in every respect, that's a very simple way of characterizing that being. So, the, you know, this is Swinburne's argument, which I think is a bad one, for the simplicity of the God hypothesis. Well, I don't think it's a simple hypothesis at all, so I, I don't buy that. But I thought, you know, this, it's worth giving 
it's worth allowing the God hypothesis to be given its best and most sophisticated presentation uh, before dismissing it entirely. So setting aside uh, what nature we can conclude God to have if there were a God, but just looking at the inductive case that he makes for our universe having been intentionally created, uh, that seems less obviously terrible to me than the God must be infinite because infinity is simpler than 17, uh, for example. And, and in fact, last year at Nexus in our live podcast recording, we uh, talked about the simulation hypothesis and the sort of uh, deductive and inductive case for why our, our universe might, be, might have been created, simulated on a computer in a, another universe. Right, so you, and, you, you covered, I'm sorry, um, so you covered the simulation hypothesis, right, in, in your book, although very briefly. Um, and um, as Judah said, we, we covered before, basically this is the idea that instead of a god, it was a computer programmer of some sort who just put these things together. Yeah, and it's, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, like, um, it's like a video game for somebody else. Now, I call that God for Geeks. Um, yeah, yeah. Seems, it seems, it seems By like the way, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a computer simulation. Uh, no. one, of the, one of the physicists I spoke to, uh, Andre Linda at, uh, at Stanford, who, as many of you uh, probably know, is the father of the theory of chaotic inflation, which is the, you know, the most uh, uh, so sophisticated theory uh, that we have at present for, uh, to explain essentially what was going on before the Big Bang and, and the, the, the way the, the background uh, radiation left over from the Big Bang looks and that sort of thing. So Andre Linda said, uh, his theory is chaotic inflation, and basically the idea is that the universe at a very early stage, you know, at 10 to the minus 33 seconds, underwent this uh, very rapid expansion. And when the expansion stopped, that's when all the particles and energy came into existence that eventually evolved into the observable universe. But he pointed out that in the, the inflationary scenario, you can make a universe with about, you know, one 100 trillionth of a gram of matter. So the resources you need to make even a vast universe like the observable universe are very, very modest. And he said, it, it's quite possible that our universe was made by a physicist hacker in another universe in a lab. And, um, and uh, he was putting this, you know, forth this Isn't idea. Isn't there an episode of the Big Bang Theory about that? I'm sorry? Isn't there an episode of the Big Bang Theory? I've never seen this show. I've never seen know far better than either of us. Or, or The Matrix. And, or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I'm... Oh, Off our stage yeah, now. Yeah. We, we, I, I yeah. don't have any of the pop cultural background for this. I don't even know why I'm here. Well, so uh, if someone was creating a universe, could they actually set the constants, the physical constants of that universe? Yeah, yeah this, was, this was Andre Linda's uh, very amusing idea. He said that, that um, okay, you can create a universe if you're a hacker in a more advanced civilization with, with very modest resources. But you couldn't really, you know, you, if you were going to create a universe, you would, especially a universe that evolved intelligent beings, you would want to communicate with them in some way. You would want to let them know that you had created them. And, you know, so um, the, the physicist hacker might want to write in the firmament, please remember that I created you, or something like that. But the problem with inflation is that the thing blows up so quickly that... Uh, that we would be living in a very tiny corner of one letter of this message. It wouldn't be able to read it. So there would be no way for the creator, this physicist hacker, to, cr to communicate with this creation except by uh, he could alter the constants in the physical laws. And this would mean that there could be a message hidden in things like the gravitational constant, the fine coupling constant, the ratio of the mass of the electron to the proton, this sort of thing, and that only physicists would be able to read it. So of he thought this is very. But he also said that this is what I thought was the most profound, humorous observation he made was that the hypothesis that our universe was created by a physicist hacker would explain why it's basically so crummy. I mean, if you look about it, it's not an elegantly constructed universe. I mean, why are there 60 plus different kinds of elementary particles? You know, why are there, why are all these asymmetries uh, in the, uh, why, if you look at the best theory we have of the universe, the standard model of physics, it's an ugly theory. It's a, it's a, it's a right. stick and bubblegum contraption. Actually, the, actually, the argument that I was uh, about to bring up earlier is uh, different from the simulation hypothesis that we talked about last year. It's instead the argument that if our universe was not intentionally created to be able to support life, then we have this weird, extremely uh, unlikely coincidence to explain that... Uh, it just so happened that the uh, physical uh, uh, constants were, were in this very, very narrow band that would allow life to be created. Um, and, and so, you know, we should, we should think that it's just much more likely to see the universe that we see under the hypothesis that it was intentionally created than under the hypothesis that it was randomly created. But there are two problems with that, that argument that, that, that I think we should explore. One is, there's a lot of discussion here, if you think about it, sort of underlying that, the, the argument from fine-tuning, because that's what it comes down to, 
Um, one, one of the assumptions there is that the distribution of possible values of those constants is in fact flat and essentially infinite. That is, that is equally probable that, let's say, the charge of the electron or the mass of the proton or whatever it is, uh, took that particular uh, uh, value as opposed to any number of, you know, an infinite number of other values. And if you put it that way, of course, yes, then the, the chances of having that particular value are, you know, one over infinity multiplied by the number of constants and becomes incredibly, incredible, in fact that all of this just happened by coincidence. But we really don't know anything at all about the distribution of these, the values for these constants. It could be, for all we know, that there is only one way in which the universe could have come out, or maybe there is a distribution, but it's a narrow distribution. Maybe the parameters that, you know, the values that came out are actually the most probable, or at least they're not very improbable. We really have no clue about what that distribution is, and so we're simply making the assumption that it's an infinite, flat distribution. If, if that falls, uh, and there is, I don't think, any empirical evidence for that particular assumption, that, that idea goes out the window. The other typical criticism, which I think you do get into in the book, is of course that um, a, a version of the, of the um, many, many universes hypothesis, the idea that, um, you know, that, well, this may be in fact one of an infinite number of universes, and yes, all sorts of parameter combinations appear in, any, in, in, in the entire multiverse, but obviously we, we found ourselves only in the ones that actually happen to uh, bring about life. There is an infinite other number out there where nobody's asking the question, not Douglas Adams was never born, and so on and so forth, right? So, so those two, it seemed to me, strike me as very, very good answers. One is an, an answer from ignorance, essentially. We say, well, what do you mean? You're making assumptions here about the distribution that you don't, you cannot support. And the other one is actually a reasonable answer um, coming out of theoretical physics. Now, true, there's no empirical evidence of multiverses, fine. <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is the case, but, but physically it is in fact a very good possibility. Yeah. The well, there's, there is actually a little bit of empirical evidence for the multiverse model because the, uh, the theory of chaotic inflation that explains conditions in this universe so accurately, that explains all of the observations by the COBE satellite of the uh, of the texture of the background radiation left over for the Big Bang, that theory implies that there should be uh, uh, other universes. I mean, by the way, to speak of a multiverse, you might just say, well, why don't we call the multiverse the universe? I mean, it's, right. the universe is all there is. But um, the, the reason it's appropriate to use, to, to speak of many universes in this context, is because if you think of, you know, our universe is sort of a, you know, a, it, it's a, a bubble universe in, in this ensemble of bubble universes. And you can't get from one of the universes in the multiverse to, to another because the space between them is expanding faster than the speed of light. So there's no possibility of getting from one to the other. There's no possibility of, of uh, causal contact between two of, of one of them influencing the other or sending a signal or anything like that. So in a sense, they are unobservable. But if they're implied by a theory that explains the observable world very nicely, that's some reason to take the observation seriously. It, it and I agree with you that the multiverse uh, model, I mean, this, is, this has been, uh, uh, this is hardly original with us. The multiverse model really solves the fine-tuning problem because the, you know, these constants of physics that we think of as universal, they're just like local weather. So we happen to be living in a corner of the, the multiverse where the local weather is nice. And so, of course, you know, we can only live in this part of the multiverse, so what else are we going to observe? Right. So, yeah, none of that. I mean, I, I, yeah, no, I, mean I'm not, I don't think that there are any, uh, it, it, we, perhaps we should get away from the, the, the notion that of, uh, of uh, God is an explanation for the universe. I mean, I think we're, we're still yeah. feeling still the gravitational solve the pull. Problem of yeah. of why but, but I do want to right? Why was yeah. even if our universe was created or is part of the multiverse? Why was why did a creator exist or yeah, why yeah, does the multiverse exactly, yeah. exist? Right. I mean, there are so two problems with the God about this. Is one that we uh, many of us don't believe in God. Uh, the other is that that even if God did exist, that too would require an explanation. The, uh, and even Richard Swinburne, the great theologian, I said, okay, if God is the God hypothesis, really is the simplest one. Uh, by the, the canons of scientific explanation. What explains the existence of God? Right. Uh, and he said, God is just a brute fact. Uh, he didn't believe in the, in the ontological argument that God exists as a matter of logical necessity, that there, there's no further explanation for God's existence, and you just have to accept that as a brute fact. So, you know, all, explanation always has to come to an end, and for me, the neatest place for it come to an end is with God. But, you know, this, then I, I, it occurred to me that, that if God exists, which I don't believe, that, that, you know, God must be puzzled by his own existence. You know, well, you know, I'm eternal. I've always been here. And I've got all this power. But where, where did I come from? Why not, why not nothing? You know? And so maybe you know, out of boredom with contemplating the puzzle of his own existence, he created the world. You know, that's, I'm that's going uh, to indulge your patience for a moment and, and, and refer to Douglas Adams again. There is a wonderful bit in the Chagas Guide to the Galaxy where God is is presented with some kind of reasoning similar to the one you 
put forth. And the, the outcome of that is that it disappears in a puff of logic. <laughs> That's it. Douglas Adams always got there before I did. He always has a better job. The guy was amazing. That's the guy was amazing. But, but before we go ahead, Judah, sorry. Uh, one more thing. I really want to nail a couple more things about Swinburne. Um, uh, because I think sometimes uh, theologically inclined philosophers get, a, get, a, get away with a little too much. And in this particular case, there's two things. I mean, other than the, the objections that you raise, which I think are very reasonable, there are two additional uh, things that I think are problematic anytime that I read something like Swinburne or Plantinga, for instance, who is another example of a, of a well-known uh, theologian who argues along similar lines. And those are, uh, number one, the issue of complexity. And this one, unfortunately, complexity of God. Uh, about this one, unfortunately, I think even atheists like Richard Dawkins are, are guilty of. That is, I am not sure, I haven't seen any argument, any developed argument, that convinced me that the concept of complexity can be coherent, or simplicity, can be coherently applied to a god, or at least mm -hmm. the kind of god we're talking about. So when Richard Dawkins says, well, god is not a good explanation because it's very complicated, or when Swimming says the opposite, you know, it's, it's a very simple explanation, I have no idea what they're talking about, because how do you measure the complexity of God? You know, what kind of sort of metric? I've never seen, it. they both assume that, well, it's obvious that it's, obvious that it's very simple, it's obvious it's very complex. To me, that is not obvious at all, and to the point that I suspect there is actually no way to cash out that, that concept. So that's the, the, the first thing. The other thing is, and this one really bothers, bothers me often when it comes to so-called supernatural explanations in general, that these people seem to have a very bizarre idea of what counts as an explanation. Okay, so to me, God did it, it's not an explanation. It's just uh, reformulating the mystery in a way that makes your, that satisfies you better from a psychological perspective. You have not given me any explanation at all. Okay, you have not given me any, any idea of mechanisms, any ideas of motivations, if we're talking about a, a conscious individual, you know, conscious being. Those would count as explanations. Yeah. But, but, but just say, well, and therefore God did it, it's like, no, that sounds superficially like an explanation. It just doesn't qualify. No epistemologist would, would buy that as an explanation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that um, Swinburne not only uh, develops his case for God being the simplest explanation of existence, but he, 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 t he develops it in great detail right down to the incarnation crucifixion and resurrection. Natural. And, yeah, and actually well, I was sitting in a study in Oxford and in uh, you know, a fully skeptical cast of mind. And I have to say, he was sitting in front of a crucifix and he had a very, uh, he reminded me a bit of a, of a Byzantine divine. He actually is a, is a, uh, uh, a, a congregant of the uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, Church. And uh, there was a crucifix behind him and, and ha as he un uh, unfolded this sort of very luminous and very coherent and I think very false uh, story, I could see a, a kind of nimbus forming around him as though he were a saint, you know, so it, it, it's very seductive. Um, and I think, and also, you know, I, I, I also felt that this is a man of, of genuine intellectual integrity. Uh, yes. And so I, I felt that not the slightest inclination to make fun of him in my book. Um, yes, but I agree with you. The, the notion of simplicity is a very dodgy one. The idea that simple things are more probable than, than, more co than complex things is, right. is a, uh, I, I don't know why we should think that to be true. Um, if, if uh, you know, the, uh, the early theories of chemistry, which had, you know, you know one, one or two elements, you know, are very simple, but the so actual everything is made of fire or something. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. We have 110 elements in counting, and it's, it's, it's not simple at all. I, I was actually glad in your book that you didn't treat the uh, religious explanations, or you didn't give them that much space, just because there are so many uh, really difficult uh, to evaluate hypotheses, um, like much more difficult to evaluate than the God hypotheses, that I actually am like, genuinely unsure about, unlike the God hypotheses. Um, and the sort of most fundamental one uh, for me was, you know, I, when I look at the question, uh, why, does, why is there anything at all, I also, like you, have this intuition that there is a mystery there that needs explaining, um, but then I have the second intuition that my first intuition might just be confused, um, that maybe there actually doesn't, there isn't something there that needs to be explained. And the, the reason that I have that second intuition uh, is that when I try to imagine what kind of explanation could ever possibly feel like it settled things, I can't picture anything at all. Um, and I, uh, like you were saying earlier, you know, you, uh, an explanation, explanations always sort of explain brute facts in terms of other brute facts that we already understand. And uh, so I'm always going to keep wanting to say, well, yeah, but why is that a brute fact? And yeah. it just doesn't, I can't imagine there ever being any end to that process, which makes me wonder if maybe the right answer to this question isn't just a sort of deflationary, like, well, why do I think that this needs an explanation as opposed to what is the explanation? 
Yeah, I, I, I think there is an end to it. Eventually, you run out of logical options, and you're stuck with a, uh, if you ascend the explanatory hi hierarchy to a certain point, you're, you're, you end up with a single explanation, or actually with two explanations that imply the same thing, but that's to get ahead of ourselves. But I, I think you're right. The, the, the question uh, that we're at, if we're asking the question, why is there a world rather than nothing at all, the question that you know, bewitched Wittgenstein and, 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 uh, and, and, and many of us, and, and, and may well be, as some people believe, the, 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 the root of the, or the source of the religious impulse, the, the, the proper question to ask is, why does reality take the most general form that it does? Now, I was one of the, um, the great thinkers I talked to was Steven Weinberg, who I think is the, you know, one of the greatest living physicists. He's regarded as the father of the standard model of physics, and he won the Nobel Prize for his work in um, unifying the, uh, the uh, weak force with the electromagnetic force in the 1960s. And a, and a very deep thinker, very anti, has written brilliant uh, essays against uh, religion in uh, the New York Review of Books, and actually came up with a, a wonderful epigram uh, for, um, uh, how, how does it go, a, a, for a wicked person, wicked people do wicked things, but for a good person to do wicked things, that takes religion, right. which I think is sort of about. Anyway, and I, you know, I said, you know, he, I, I was discussing the uh, attempt of Lawrence Krauss and other physicists to give a purely scientific explanation for the existence of a world rather than nothing at all, and he, like you know, many of the other uh, physicists I spoke to, thinks that's no good. That that even when we have a final theory of physics, you know, the so-called theory of everything that's always you know just over the horizon, we can never you know string theory is supposed to get us there, but you know that's you know been promising us the final theory for about the last three decades. So I'm beginning to get a little uh, pessimistic, and so is Weinberg. But in any case, even when we have the final theory, and it, it, it might explain the Big Bang, what was going on before the Big Bang. It might explain that you know, we're living in this eternal, uh, chaotically inflating multiverse, but it won't explain, there will still be the question why this set of laws rather than some completely different set of laws or no laws at all. It will always leave a residuum of mystery. Uh, and so even Weinberg, who, is, who is, has uh, been uh, famously and fiercely critical of philosophy in a lot of his public writings, was eventually driven in a philosophical um, direction and was you know, talking with me about principles like the principle of plenitude, which says that all uh, imaginable possibilities actually exist somewhere. And so, so if you ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, there's both. There's both something and nothing because there's a null world out there and there's this world and there's the best of all possible worlds, et cetera. It's all real. If, if that um, were true, would that actually feel like a satisfying... All right, all right, now we've solved it. That's why there is something? Um, well, you would... You no, could, because then you yeah. would ask, why is the principle of planetary tour, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, would, uh, yeah. About but, but, Weinberg, however, uh, so, so let, let's go back here to the physicists for a second. So, so it's interesting, I, I actually talked to Weinberg uh, recently during a, a, a three-day long workshop on naturalism uh, that um, uh, the, the video uh, is available for people that have, can actually stomach three days of, of philosophers and physicists talking to each other. Um, but anyway, um, it was an interesting experience. And yes, I confirm that that is pretty much his attitude at this point, uh, which was surprising because, as you said, he did write things years ago, um, very critical of philosophy. I, I suspect that physicists, when they actually become wise, they actually they become more open to philosophy, which brings me to Krauss. You mentioned him twice already. Now, as you know, he, he's not mentioned in your book. Uh, I suspect uh, um, partly because the, the Krauss book actually came out later or it was in production pretty much when your no. book was out, something like that. Um, but as you probably know, there's been this huge controversy over the last several months. It doesn't seem to go away, actually. It just reappeared recently between Krauss and uh, David Albert um, at Columbia, who is a, uh, just as a little bit of a background, uh, Albert is a philosopher of physics. He's also, he also actually has a PhD in theoretical physics. And um, the book that Krauss wrote last year, that came out last year, which was about how physics explained uh, everything. Yeah, the title, is, the title of Krauss's book is A Universe from Nothing, and the right. subtitle is Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. Right, so it's a pretty definitive promise that he makes in, yeah. uh, in that book, uh, in the title at least. And uh, it was very well reviewed up until Albert published his review in the New York Times, which, let's say, it's not exactly uh, complimentary. Now, Highly I'm, entertaining, well worth, yes. well worth looking up. And, and the last paragraph is one of the, uh, the most poisonous concluding paragraphs in the history <laughs> right. of book reviewing, and very so, effective. We'll, we'll post yeah. it maybe. I actually, the, for uh, once in my life, I, I, I felt pity for Lawrence Krauss, <laughs> and he's a hard man to feel pity for. <laughs> now, this has led to a endless, apparently, discussions, uh, directly, indirectly between Albert and Krauss, but more broadly between Krauss and a bunch of other people, 
Uh, Krauss sort of lashed out at philosophy in general uh, as a result of that review. Uh, Daniel Dennett told him essentially to apologize in Scientific American, um, in, and he had apologized by insulting even more. So it, was, it just kept going that way. Now, th all of this is, you know, this is all in good fun, but this was leading actually to a serious question, which is what do you think is, from your perspective, having talked to a lot of philosophers and, and scientists, what is, what is your view about the relationship between not only science and philosophy in general, but sort of physics and metaphysics in particular? Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the interface between physics and metaphysics. So what, what is your thought about that? Oh, oh. <laughs> and you have 30 seconds. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I mean, the, the, the first observation that occurs to me is that the metaphysical picture of the world that science gives us is not at all satisfying. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with, uh, with quantum theory, either the, with the mathematics of it or you've read popularizations of it. And, and you know that, um, that, that, that it's been impossible for physicists or philosophers or anyone who's thought about the, the, the matter to give a re realistic interpretation of quantum theory. Uh, as Richard Feynman memorably put it, uh, uh, how did he put it? Uh, if you think you understand quantum theory, yeah, you're crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a wonderful, you know, the, the, the attitude now in the physics world is shut up and calculate. Don't worry about what it means because it's impossible to make sense of. It seems to have paradox built into it, but it's this marvelous, marvelous calculating device. It's, it's you know, if your criterion of scientific su success is empirical adequacy, then quantum field theory is, is, is a success. It gives you empirical ad adequacy down to the 11th decimal point. But uh, it, you know, what is the picture of the universe it gives us? Well, there are no, I mean, we, we seem to be sitting on a stage and here's a table and microphones and you're out there in the audience and sitting in chairs and so forth. Uh, all of this is sort of an illusion. Really, all we have is this system called U, which stands for the universe, and uh, its uh, state is described by a point in infinite dimensional Hilbert space. And when I look on the table and I observe uh, a bottle of Poland spring water, what I'm actually observing is that this, the, the state of the, of the system U is actually in, a, in some uh, uh, subspace of Hilbert space. So, you know, all, all of the, the, the Lebensfeld that we all live in is, is basically just is an illusion. It's not fundamentally real. Uh, and, you know, so that's one thing. I mean, the physical world is, is way, you know, different than, than we imagine it. And nor is it possible to integrate very important parts of the Lebensfeld to us, our consciousness, value, the, the, the objective badness of pleasure and the objective goodness, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I sound like an ascetic, the objective uh, uh, badness of, of uh, pain and the goodness or desirability of pleasure, et cetera. Um, so uh, the, 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 the naturalistic worldview is, uh, it's very good at helping us predict the patterns of regularity in our experience. It's very bad so far at giving us uh, any idea of how subjectivity, consciousness, and value fit into that picture. And this is something, by the way, the great NYU philosopher Thomas Nagel has just written a book many of you have no doubt heard of called Mind and Cosmos. And he complains that, you know, unfortunately Mind and Cosmos has been, in the press, has been depicted as an attack on, uh, on uh, the Darwinian worldview. And to some extent it is, but I, I, I think that's an unfortunate aspect of the book. I think the, the, the interesting claim that Nagel makes is that the naturalistic worldview does have a real difficulty uh, integrating subjectivity and value. Uh, and um, so it's adequate for what it does, but it's not adequate you know, to, uh, you know, to, to our entire existence. Now, that, that's awfully, uh, an awfully vaporous answer. Well, no, no, I think it is, um, well, I don't know about awfully vaporous. I, I, I understood it. But, um, no, Gaseous. What, yes. One of the things, actually, that, that is important that just came, uh, particularly from your comment about Nagel, you know, uh, Nagel's book is, as you say, in some sense, unfortunate. Um, it, but, it, but it's unfortunate that he has been, um, he's going to be dismissed for the wrong reasons. And, and, and I think the point that Nagel does make very well, as you just uh, summarized, is that the reductionist, particularly the physics-based, fundamentally physics, fundamental physics-based view of the world that we have, which, by the way, it's only one particular way of, of cashing out the idea of naturalism. Naturalism is a much broader philosophy that actually is compatible with a lot of other stuff out there, uh, and maybe we can talk about some of that in a minute. Um, but that particular worldview, as successful as it has been in fundamental physics, actually does have a lot of trouble dealing with a lot of other things. And not just the high-level phenomena you're talking about, like consciousness, free will, morality, all that sort of stuff, aesthetics, for instance, all that. Stuff. But in fact, I'm, 
at the naturalism workshop um, with, uh, with Weinberg, this thing came out that uh, even non-fundamental physicists over the last, some of them at least, over the last several years have been having increasing trouble with these, these um, idea that it all comes down to fundamental, it all comes down to quarks or strings and all that sort of stuff. In fact, one of them, uh, one of these people, um, I don't remember his name, so, but we'll post the, the link to the, on the website for the podcast. Um, one of these is a solid state physicist. And he pointed out that actually over the last two or three decades, the more fundamental physicists, physicists were successfully doing what they were doing, the less relevant they were to the rest of physics, let alone to biology, ecology, psychology, and so on and so forth. And that is because what you, the way you describe, for instance, the table and the water and all that sort of stuff, I think of that as a description of the world, which is very different from saying that, that is the way the world really is. It's one description of the world, and at one level of understanding of what the world, how the world is put together, that is a perfectly good description, and it's much more informative than other kinds of descriptions. But at the level of having this conversation, and, and if I wanted to understand, let's say, your motivations to, for coming in uh, today at the Nexus conference, being on the podcast, and so on and so forth, that description tells me absolutely nothing useful about, about this. And I'm an empiricist. I think that science has to do with useful stuff. If an entire, if an allegedly fundamental theory in science is incapable to tell me anything at all useful on the majority of the aspects of what is interesting to science today, then I think there's a problem. That doesn't mean that the theory is wrong, it just means that it's not complete. It's not, it's not the only way of looking at, or the most informative way of looking at that, the problem. So are you talking about, say, the... the um you know, the physicists are looking for a, a, a unified theory of physics that gives that that, that uh, places all four of the fundamental forces of nature in the same mathematical framework. This quest is completely irrelevant to, to genetics, yeah, to brain or science, yeah, yeah. To, any, to any of the high-level sciences. Right. That, um, so, is that, is that one of the points you were making? That is one of the yeah. points, and um, one of the things that I noticed in, in your book again was not. Um, um, mentioned, but I, I suspect that that is also because the book that I'm about to mention came out at the same time, and so that it, apparently this topic is very it's very hot because lots of people are publishing books on these on these kind of things. Um, but it's the work by two philosophers of science, James Lediman and uh, Don Ross, and they published a book uh, a year and a half ago or so called "Everything Must Go," um, and it's it's really a book about the uh, how metaphysics makes sense of the, the differences between fundamental physics and the so-called special sciences, mm -hmm. uh, biology, ecology, psychology, and so on and so forth. And without getting into details uh, with, about the book, by the way, we, uh, we did have James Lediman on, on the Rationally Speaking podcast, so people can check it out. But the basic idea there is, in fact, that um, the so-called fundamental theory of everything is actually a theory of the fundamentals, mm -hmm. but it is not a theory of a lot of stuff that is above the fundamentals, and when you go above the fundamentals, you actually need special theories. You're never going to be reducing, eliminating biology, psychology, and so on and so forth, and, and have all of a sudden a unified description in terms of you know, quantum mechanics of everything, um, because it's just not useful. Quantum mechanics is simply not useful. There's no way to develop that theory. Uh, and make sense of psychological pro uh, processes Jim, I, and so on. I've been wanting to ask you uh, about the fundamentals. You left us on a cliffhanger earlier when I was saying it seemed to me like there couldn't be an explanation that would be satisfying and you know, actually reach the end of the chain of whys, and you said you thought that there could. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, it's I was well, good, yeah. good, good memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, 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 was, it was an Oxford philosopher named uh, Derek Parfit who was um, actually uh, profiled in The New Yorker about um, two years ago by uh, Larissa McFarker, a very fine writer, very interesting profile. And actually, uh, if any of you are curious about what's going on in, in uh, Anglophone analytical philosophy, uh, this profile is a, a, a very good introduction. The, na the name of the, the subject is Derek Parfit. He's a, a P-A-R-F-I-T. He's a fellow of, a longtime fellow of all souls. And uh, it, he was the one who got me to think about the mystery of existence in a completely different way. It was, instead of thinking, how did something, how did the world come out of nothingness? That's the wrong way of thinking about it. The right way, he claimed, it was to imagine all the different ways reality might have turned out. So one way is nothingness, the null world. That's the simplest way. Another way would be the, the, the way that the principle of, of uh, plenitude that we were just uh, discussing uh, would have it, that all possible realities actually exist. That would be the richest a possible reality, the fullest and, and the least arbitrary since it excluded nothing. And so in between the null state, the world of nothingness, 
and the platitudinous world, the fullest possible world, you have all kinds of intermediate possibilities. One of them would be the best of all possible worlds where only good things existed. Another would be the most, uh, uh, the, 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 the most, uh, I suppose, the most mathematically elegant world where the, the, the laws of physics were the most beautiful, that sort of thing. And then there'd be just a lot of, you know, crappy, mediocre worlds. Um, and, and, like, which is basically, um, I think, this universe is, yeah. is one of those crappy, mediocre ones. I mean, I call it, a, it's a cosmic junk shot. It's, a, uh, it's an infinite, uh, incomplete, mediocre mess with, with, you know, with areas of, of orderliness and beauty and goodness and then areas of, of ugliness and evil. I mean, it contains... Uh, beautiful phenomena. It contains child cancer, etc. Um, and uh, this, if you if you follow the explanatory scheme that that uh, uh, Derek Parfit has laid out, and you you explain, uh, uh, it's way too complicated to talk about in this context. But basically, well, I'll give you a hint uh, as to the solution. The, the principle of simplicity, which is a bedrock principle of science, you always go for the simplest explanation, and the principle of fullness or plenitude, which goes back to Plato, uh, sort of conspire in a very funny way to produce or, or to explain a world that is neither simple nor full, but infinite, messy, falling infinitely uh, uh, far from the you know, a, a completeness, but infinitely removed from nothingness, uh, the world that we, we, we inhabit, not just the physical world, but the, you know, the, our subjective world is like that. I mean, the, um, uh, I think the subjective world, the world of, uh, of, you know, of pleasure and pain and, and, and good and evil, whether those are fundamentally or you know, ultimately subjective or not, I don't know. But I mean, that's something that we need an explanation of too. And I think the fact that the, the, the world is a, this sort of weird mixture of, uh, of goodness and suffering. And it's, you know, different people have different attitudes toward it. I mean, Woody Allen gave an interview actually to a Jesuit priest uh, about two years ago, and he talked about his vision of the world, and it's really, you know, he said it's a world of brutal meaninglessness and, and, and you know, sort of overwhelming bleakness, and we all go to our graves in a horrible, meaningless way, and it's yeah, that's suffering. Woody, right? You know, there are little, there are little pools of charm and, and, and you know, uh, and, and love, but, but it's basically, it's just, you know, Schopenhauer's vision of the universe, or the, the, the Buddhist vision. I mean, it's better not to exist at all. And we should all try to extinguish all our, our desires and lapse into this wonderful state of nirvana, which is, you know, being just, uh, having just enough life to enjoy being dead. It's something, the closest we can get to nothing. <laughs> so I'm sort of, anyway, so I, I'm just babbling on here. But I do think that, you know, in my book, uh, extending the, 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 the you know, way of thinking about ultimate explanation along Derek Parfit's lines, you, you, you eventually run out of logical options as you try to explain the world and then explain why that explanation is right and then explain why that, that meta explanation is right. Eventually you run out of options and you get something like a logically unique uh, explanation at the highest level. And it doesn't tell you a lot, but it does tell you something. It tells you that, that reality is in, in most senses infinite. Now that seems to be a very fuzzy claim, but if you look, you know, could look back to the, you know, the year 1900, it was thought that reality was very far from infinite. The, it, the, mm -hmm. the physical reality was thought to consist just of the Milky Way, just of this one galaxy sitting in otherwise empty space with these little fuzzy areas, they were called nebulae, which looked like clouds. But then, you know, lo and behold, with uh, telescopes of greater resolution, it was discovered that these little fuzzy things were actually other galaxies, or many of them were. And so now we, you know, we know that there are about 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, and this is just one little part of a multiverse, and there might be many multiverses, and so So reality is really, you know, it, it is turning out to be infinite in almost every respect. It's probably did not have a beginning. Right. It, it, it's, it's likely that it's eternal. But clearly it falls short of everything, of, you know, of, of realizing every possibility, or, or so we think. So, yeah, this, this, this very fuzzy-sounding conclusion that reality is an infinite, incomplete, uh, mediocre mass does make actual empirical predictions. So before we move on to the last part of the podcast, um, and Julie's going to take over a minute, I, I wanted to make a point about what you just said from, from Parfit. So it, it, in some sense, answering my own question earlier on <laughs> about the relationship between physics and metaphysics. And that is, if you think about it, you know, whether, whether you, people are going to buy Parfit's answer or not, I think it's, it's not the point that I'm, that I'm trying to make. It doesn't, hinges on, it doesn't hinge on that. The point is that Parfit's answer is entirely logical. It's entirely based on, on, on logical analysis. It's not informed by empirical evidence. So it's pure metaphysics, essentially. Um, and now, as you pointed out, however, even if you do buy an answer, um, what happens is that it, it's a very genetic answer. It's a very general answer about a very general question. Then it doesn't actually tell you any of the specific contents of the particular universe in which we live. For that, you need physics. 
You can't get there by just logical analysis because the logical analysis is about you know, these, these very broad space of possibilities. But, of course, we live in a particular instantiation of that space of possibilities. Um, the physical universe better be logically possible, because if, it's, if it were logically impossible, then we would have a problem. But just because it's logically possible, it's certainly not the only logical possibility. It's one yeah, yeah. of many logical yeah. possibilities, almost infinite. Um, and so, to me, that actually is an, it's an interesting, you know, going back and forth in different chapters in your book, where you talk from, on the one hand, at the, sort of one extreme at the spectrum, if you will, to people like Parfit who approach the thing entirely on metaphysical grounds, entirely on logic in, in, the, in terms of logical possibilities, and then to physicists who, on the other hand, as much as they may be interested in the metaphysics, they actually uh, like to do the, the, either the shut up and calculate thing or tell you how things actually are. That, to me, is what emerges in the long run is, I think, the best uh, view of the relationship between physics and metaphysics. That is, it is the interplay between logical possibilities on the one hand and physical possibilities on the other. The philosophers tend to be more interested in the logical possibilities, of course. The scientists tend to be interested in the empirical possibilities. But we sort of need both if we want to get to yeah, the big yeah. picture. There are other possible ways of explaining, you know, once you have the final theory of physics, is there any explanation of why the laws take that form? Well, you know, one hope was there might be a single logically, only one logically consistent uh, final theory, and that's ridiculous because the theory of nothingness is logically consistent. There, there are many, Newtonian physics is logically consistent. There are many logically consistent theories. But one possibility, and this was brought up by uh, the great and uh, now dead physicist John Archibald Wheeler, is that the laws of physics, the final theory, will be the only logically consistent theory that is uh, that will permit the emergence of conscious observers, such as ourselves. And so Wheeler called this notion the participatory universe. And so you would ask the question, why should conscious observers be an ontologically necessary ingredient in a cosmos? And the answer is, uh, you know, basically in quantum theory, you have, uh, the, the universe has lots of possible histories, and they all sort of coexist in what's called a superposition. And until an observation is made, none of these histories is real. And so if you look at all the histories of the universe from the beginning, some of them, some of these histories give rise to conscious observers, and others give rise to a kind of a zombie, lifeless, observerless universe. But in the, in the histories that give rise to observers, the observers at, at the end of the history look back and make an observation and collapse the wave function and make that history real as opposed to merely possible. And sort of, so it's a very interesting idea that the universe creates us, and we, in a sense, create the universe by collapsing the wave function. And this is a crazy-sounding, lotus-leaf-eating idea. But it came from the, the teacher of uh, Richard Feynman, the man who, who coined the term uh, black hole and quantum foam. It's a very great physicist. And this, this is the sort of crazy conjectures that, that contemplating reality will lead you to. I mean, Bertrand Russell, I think, famously said that, that common sense is self-undermining because common sense leads to science, and then science completely undermines common sense. So I think this is a case of that. I mean, it just sounds like something that, uh, an idea someone had an acid trip, the participatory universe. <laughs> so now I'll shut up. Okay, we, we can get to the question and answers. And Great. of course, let's try to have questions instead of speeches, if possible. Shouldn't the uh, historical analog to um, Derek Parfit uh, satisfy, um, that is the great philosopher, King, uh, King Lear's fool, uh, in, in asking, Lear, why the seven stars are not more than seven, and, uh, and providing the answer, because they are not eight. Your book could have been so short. <laughs> why you wrote a whole book. I was convinced when you brought up Lear that you would have, you, uh, the line uh, you, you would allude to was, nothing comes of nothing. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, I actually don't remember the one about seven, it, well, yeah, that's, um, you know, Hegel thought he had a, a, a philosophical, an a priori proof that there were exactly seven planets, and this was just before um, uh, Uranus was discovered, which made eight. So, uh, so much for yeah, that proof. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I don't understand what the word exists means in the context of the principle of plentifulness. I mean, how, how can you have a universe where nothing exists if you do have a universe where everything, where all these other things exist? You're exactly right. You're absolutely right, and I, actually, I, I, this was some Nozick, Robert Nozick, who wrote Anarchy, State, and Utopia, he, Utopia, he was a philosopher at Harvard who, who uh, died about 10 years ago. Uh, he um, was a champion of the, the principle of plenitude as a, as a conceptual possibility. He said, yeah, yeah you would have something and nothing. And, I thought this, and then Richard, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Steven Weinberg, the physicist, agreed with this, and I thought, this is crazy. If you have something, you don't have nothing. They can't coexist. And, I, and I, when I, the first thing I asked Derek Parfit when I went to All Souls in this sort of, you know, 
marvelous, you know, ethereal cloistered atmosphere, I said, you, you do agree that nothing and something can't coexist. And you say, of course. So, you know, this also shows you, I mean, that, that, that great thinkers, when they begin to think about the deepest of all questions, they just end up contradicting one another. I mean, you, you know, one has an intuition that something and nothing can coexist, and you and I and Derek Parfit have the you know, equally strong intuition that if there's something, there's not nothing. Um, so that's just why it's good. You know, th these questions are best pursued in college dorms at 2 a.m. with a bomb, I think. Uh, <laughs> Do we have other questions? Yes, right there. Um, is there anything at all about like the energy needed to like maintain a universe? Like if you have like one universe, there's like a certain amount of energy in it. But if you've got the the all of the universes an infinite number, there's an infinite amount of energy. Is there would there be any theoretical way to like yeah. say, well, there can only be so much energy, so you couldn't have an infinite number yeah. of multiverses or something? That's like a good. That. There was a, a, a New York physicist named Ed Tryon who uh, who had an idea at a, at a, at a physics colloquium in Columbia in the 1960s. He was thinking about how much energy there was in the universe, and it occurred to him that all of the the, the radiation and the energy that's locked up in matter, you know, by the equation E equals mc squared, was exactly counterbalanced by all of the negative gravitational energy. So the, 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 the net energy of the universe is zero. It's sort of like, it's like Donald Trump. You, know, you have these big assets and big uh, debts. Yes. And you know, you know, your net worth is zero. Um, so uh, it's, so then, you know, then he thought, well, the universe might be a free lunch. I mean, it, it, there could be a little quantum fluctuation since the net energy of the universe is zero. Uh, there's a trade-off between how long something can last and the exactness of its energy. It's, it's another version of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So it's possible that a net energy universe could quantum fluctuate into existence and could last for a very long time, all in uh, uh, harmony with the laws of physics. So yeah, th th this is another, you know, another crazy-sounding idea that all of this world around us is zero net energy. And you know, basically, energy is the fundamental thing that exists according to physics. I mean, all of all of the, the physical world is just energy rearranging itself in various ways. And as Richard Feynman said in his lectures, we, have, we can't tell you what energy is. We can just tell you about you know, the events where it rearranges itself from one form into another. So once again, science can't give us any satisfying notion of what reality is at the deepest level. So that's for philosophers to do. You mentioned free lunch, and then, of course, that brought uh, um, to my mind yet another quote from Douglas Adams, who said uh, that um, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. <laughs> Save some parts of his books for other podcasts. <laughs> One more? Uh, I want to touch um, on a subject of a famous um, known feud between physicists and uh, philosophers. And especially between physicists, there is such an opinion that um, the uh, book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. And in contemporary physics, philosophers uh, can do, say nothing about the uh, uh, nature of reality because they know nothing about mathematics. I, well, we heard about a third of them. Yeah, I heard you began by, I, it was Galileo, I believe, who said yes. that, that the, uh, the book of nature is written in the world, in the, in the language of mathematics. And then you said, and then you said that, that philosophers can't give us a satisfying uh, account of what mathematical entities are, in what sense they exist. I think I actually heard that philosophers don't deal with mathematics, therefore they have nothing to say about it, which is a little unfair. There's an entire branch of philosophy called philosophy of mathematics. Um, there's plenty of philosophers who know quite a bit about mathematics, but that does bring up the, one of the things that did not, we, we, we didn't talk about in the main segment, which is this whole idea of you know, mathematical Platonism and, and uh, uh, the foundation of reality as being just in the relations between things in mathematics and rather than the, the, the it from bit thing, yeah, yeah. Sense, right? So you want to talk about briefly about that? Yeah, I mean the idea that, as I was just saying, that that uh, uh, science tell, t is, is essentially deals with structure and not stuff. If you look at the uh, the the world on the finest levels, it's sort of you know good solid things sort of disappear and are replaced by you know mathematical fields that don't have any you know good old fashioned solidity. And so um, and and. Uh, you can only say what an electron is. You, we can't say anything about the intrinsic nature of an electron. We can just say that it has a charge. That means it has a propensity to affect other electrons in certain ways and to be affected by other electrons in certain ways. So basically, this picture of reality that science gives us is, is, is that of a, a pure informational flux. And, and it's completely silent on the question, 
you know, in what kind of stuff is this informational flux realized? And so the, the radical thought has occurred to some thinkers that there is no stuff. It's just all, it's structure all the way down. It's pure information. It's pure mathematics because mathematics is the science of structure. Mathematicians, if two structures are, you know, if, if two uh, structures are, have the same, uh, are isomorphic as mathematicians say, they don't care what color the structures are, are, are painted. That's irrelevant. So, uh, so th then um, the, you know, it, it, that you have the notion that maybe if mathematical entities exist platonically, if they exist eternally, and they're actually good physicists who believe this, like Sir Roger Penrose, one of the great living physicists, he's a mathematical Platonist, and he believes that mathematics is more real than the physical world, and that, that the mathematical entities are so rich, they sort of sort of boil over into a physical world. I mean, it's almost mystical the way he puts it, but he really does believe this. And then there are other people who believe that the world is like a computer simulation, but there's no actual hardware, it's all software. Um, you know, see, these are some of the radical ideas that uh, none of, you know, they, they, they strike, I think, all of us as being shamefully uh, conjectural. And yet, they are responses to, uh, you know, a question that science has no real answer to. I'm a philosopher. I have no problem with shameful, shameful conjectures, uh, as long as they're interesting. No, but I mean, the interesting the connection there is actually the one you implicitly made just a second ago, which is... Um, uh, structural realism, which is what these ideas, it's, it's, it's called, is the idea that there is only structures, actually has some interesting uh, support from both science and philosophy of science. And if structural realism is a reasonable view of how things go, and therefore it turns out that uh, mathematical structures are the foundations of reality as we understand it, or experience it, then from there, to say, oh, and the reason for that is because, in fact, this is a simulated universe, um, it's not that, at that point, once you got that far, that last step isn't really um, that inconceivable. It's, it's actually a fairly logical step. Now, whether I believe it or not, it's a different, it's a different matter, but the, the idea is that the conjecture is actually interesting, and it's difficult to find fault, logical fault, with the whole idea of, of the fact that, of the, the whole idea that, that um, the foundations of reality are more about structure than about things. Yeah, and then there are other people who have the, in, the intuition that you can't have structure without stuff. Right. Like structure without, it's like the smile of the Cheshire cat once the, the cat has disappeared. Um, and, uh, right. yeah, so, you know, basically at this point, we're, we're sort of scratching an itch. I mean, we're, we're, we're not dealing with, uh, with notions that, that, you know, can, can uh, go up against uh, the tribunal of experience that can be empirically tested. Um, are, we, are we actually dealing with, with, a, uh, with a, an objective reality where, where we can get things right or wrong? Or are we just trying to scratch the itch of our, of our curiosity and eliminate our sense of mystery? Well, I, I would... Uh, um, I gather that's a rhetorical question. Yeah. I'm, it, not, it, I'm it, not really sure. I mean, well, it, it, uh, it may be a rhetorical I, question, yeah. but I think that actually this goes back to what we were saying a, a few minutes ago, that is now, once you get to those kinds of conjectures, you moved significantly away from empirical evidence, uh, because the empirical evidence is compatible with all these ideas. It just doesn't determine it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't tell you, well, this one is right, that one is wrong. And so we're, we're moving from empirical, the empirical realm to the realm of logical possibilities. Yeah. And so I think we're still on interesting grounds, whether those are grounds that actually tell us how reality actually is as opposed to how reality could be. Right. But it's true that I mean, when, if you're just using the principle of Occam's razor, uh, Michael Faraday, who, who uh, really invented the notion of the, of the field uh, in the uh, 19th century, he, be, you know, he believed that uh, there's no reason to think there's anything to physical reality other than fields. Fields are essentially distributions of mathematical quantities. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're highly abstract things. They're not like the good old physical reality we're used to in the Lebensfeld. Um, and so, you know, why posit anything if, 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 the, if fields are all that's necessary to explain the pattern of our experience, why posit any stuff in addition to that, um, just because you have this intuition that you can't have structure without, without stuff to be structured. Um, yeah, so, you know, once again, this is a sort of, the Occam's razor is a sort of a, a methodological principle. It can't be empirically tested, but we can say that in general, it's, a, you know, it's worked well in the history of science. So it's, you know, it's valid in, in a sort of, you know, not an empirical way, but it's a, it's a scientific value, I suppose. Now we're in the, in the realm of values again, which silent, science is also silent by. The you know, next podcast, Occam's Razor. This podcast ended 10 minutes ago, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, not literally, but was not allegedly. Really. Oh, we're just in nothingness now? <laughs> <laughs> um, why Does the World Exist? An existential detective story. I highly recommend it. It's got an unusually uh, good mix of sophistication and clarity, which is hard with a subject like this. Uh, Jim, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show and as a guest at Nexus. Thank Thanks you so much Thank for joining you. us. Thank you. Pleasure, yeah. Thank you.
<laughs> the Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>